I also have a much better temperament than she has. You know, I think my strongest asset, maybe by far, is my temperament. <laughs> totally. That's totally being borne out as correct. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Can't challenge that. I got the feeling that something right. He's calm. He's cool. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. He's collected. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Donald Trump has put the entire nation. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. At ease. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. Yes. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast and 106.7 FM Queso in Cottage Grove, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 92.9 FM WLRI, in Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1. In Palinville, New York on 102.9 FM WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR Public Reality Radio. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950. The progressive voice of Minnesota. We're also heard streaming coast to coast and around the globe on the Progressive Voices channel. Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, and Radio Sputnik. Fantastic affiliates all. Thank you all very much, and thank you for joining us today for another thrilling episode of the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Uh, coming up in a little bit, if if for no other reason you stay tuned, stay tuned for Desi Doyen and her <laughs> Green News Report. Yes, please. It is uh, early in the year, boy oh boy howdy, it seems to me, uh, for wildfire season to be erupting. Yes. But erupting it is. Um, who Who could have foreseen it? Gosh, I don't know. As we like to say. Uh, so we'll have uh, news on that in the Green News Report, as along with uh, more Trump administration cuts or planned cuts uh, in any event that we are beginning to hear about. Um, and, and some other terrible news, as always, on our Green News Report. How's hey, that? there's some good How's news in there, I think, I hope, uh, I believe. Yeah, I don't think so. Not much. <laughs> uh, also coming up. Uh, we talked recently about why many say that Donald Trump committed impeachable offenses on the very first day that he was sworn into office. Those impeachable offenses continue to accrue, critics say, as some say. That's what they say on Fox News. Some say he should be impeached. Well, we will talk about that in a bit. Uh, but but more importantly, uh, or as importantly, there is another way other than impeachment, another legally and constitutionally uh, valid way to remove a president from office. And that alternative means may become even uh, well more viable and and more immediately important, more necessary, if you will, depending on how the unpredictable Donald Trump mood swings continue to devolve in the days ahead. Uh, we're barely six weeks into this thing. Six weeks. 
And boy, you could write several books about what has happened in just the past six weeks alone. So uh, anyway, I think this is important for people to understand along with impeachment. And so we'll talk with uh, Ernie Canning, attorney, attorney Ernest Canning, about taking the 25th. That's the 25th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution shortly. Also, if I have time, <laughs> I've been trying to get to if I have time, some good voting news for a change. Yes, there's actually some encouraging things that are going on uh, in the world of elections and voting and democracy in this country in several different places around the country. So we'll see. We'll see if I have time to get to that. But no sooner did I go off the air yesterday as we were uh, talking with Alice Olstein of Talking Points Memo about about these uh, proposed uh, changes to the budget, these proposed cuts across the board of the U.S. government, these uh, proposed $54 billion increase uh, in military spending that Donald Trump wants to carry out. We were talking with Alice Olstein about, you know, the fact that you may have Republicans in Congress who are not happy about Donald Trump's proposed uh, changes to the budget. And uh, there could be a fight ahead, including even another government shutdown over some of this, specifically uh, over raising the debt ceiling, which was something that you, you'll recall Republicans did not want to do uh, in any way, shape or form uh, while Barack Obama was in office. Will they be more willing to do it now that uh, there's a Republican in office? Maybe. But uh, we may be finding out sooner rather than later on that score. No sooner did we get off the air yesterday than the Trump administration announced that it will be taking steps next week to keep the government from an unprecedented default on the national debt. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin said uh, in a letter to lawmakers um, on Thursday that he will employ measures to avoid breaching the borrowing limit once the current Suspension of the limit expires on March 16. That uh, suspension is in place from the last deal that uh, the last time the the debt ceiling uh, came up, which is essentially the statutory limit of how how high uh, our national debt can be legally, according to Congress, before we have to start uh, defaulting. On, uh, you know, on our loans on, uh, around the world. And um, once that happens, uh, once we meet that uh, moment, uh, Treasury has said that they will use uh, various bookkeeping uh, maneuvers to avoid, uh, you know, having to shut down the government, shut down our interest payments on the national debt. Uh, the Congressional Budget Office estimates in a report uh, earlier this week that uh, those measures will be exhausted no later than this fall at the latest. In his letter to members of Congress, Mnuchin urged lawmakers to not delay acting. He writes, as I said in my confirmation hearing, honoring the full faith and credit of our outstanding debt is a critical commitment. I encourage Congress to raise the debt limit at the first opportunity so that we can proceed with our joint priorities. We'll see if they do. Um, the debt ceiling uh, sets the amount of money, essentially, that the government can borrow. It has been suspended since October 2015. That was part of the budget agreement reached between Democrats and Republicans back then, the last time we went to the brink. Uh, but that uh, suspension actually expires on March 16. 
when the debt limit will be reimposed at the level of uh, debt in effect at that time. So we'll see. Uh, Congress tends to wait until the last minute to do anything about it after the uh, Treasury Department has exhausted those so-called uh, un- extraordinary measures. We'll see if, uh, if they act earlier this time. What could possibly go wrong? Speaking of what uh, could possibly go wrong, a quick update on the uh, continuing fight to repeal and replace the dreaded Obamacare. A report from the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office on how much the Republican plan to replace uh, to repeal and replace Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, how much that will cost. That's expected uh, next week. But in the meantime, experts at the Brookings Institution have done their own analysis of the bill based on previous CBO numbers. Congressional Budget Office is the nonpartisan office that scores these bills and would will determine how much this is actually going to cost. This Republican scheme is actually going to cost how many people will be thrown off of the insurance rolls because of it. And uh, this new study from Brookings predicted uh, this is going to be bad news for Republicans when the CBO report comes out. They write uh, that uh, CBO's analysis will likely estimate that at least 15 million people will lose coverage under the American Health Care Act. That's the Republican version. By the end of the uh, 10-year scoring window, estimates could be higher, but it's unlikely that they will be significantly lower. That is based on past CBO analyses of uh, policies included in the new GOP bill, all of which are predicted to cause people to lose their insurance coverage. These policies include repealing Obamacare's individual mandate that everyone must purchase some form of health insurance, changing Medicaid into block grants, essentially a big chunk of money that they give to states, let them do with it as they will, instead of giving uh, the federal government, instead of the federal government giving the amount of money that is actually needed uh, to pay whatever those costs are for uh, Medicaid. Uh, The Republican plan includes uh, replacing the current Obamacare subsidies with less generous tax credits, allowing insurers to charge people higher premiums if their coverage lapses uh, for more than 60 days, etc. So ahead of the CBO's uh, report, Republican lawmakers in the White House have been trying to erode the public trust in the uh, Congressional Budget Office, calling its work inconsistent, way off, scored everything wrong for decades, don't pay any attention to the CBO, they don't know what they're doing. Republican members of Congress told uh, TPM a few days ago that uh, they will rely instead on their own internal analysis of the bill, backed up by, quote, some spreadsheets or whatever. Oh, great. So no worries there. Uh, In the meantime, while we've been focusing on Medicaid and the cuts that are going to happen there uh, with if this Republican bill is ever managed to put into place. uh, Meantime, uh, it's not just Medicaid uh, that folks should also be worrying about. Allegra Kirkland reports that the long awaited GOP health care bill finally unveiled uh, strikes an immediate an immediate blow to Medicare funding accelerating a solvency crisis that health policy experts say could open the door to even more devastating cuts down the road by repealing a payroll tax on high earners that provided uh, critical revenue for the Medicare trust fund. The GOP's proposed bill would speed up that fund's exhaustion. Uh, 
according to estimates from healthcare policy experts. Paul uh, Vanderwater, a Medicare expert at the left-leaning Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, says it's clear, simple, and undeniable that this bill would adversely affect the solvency of Medicare. This is a, a prime example of the GOP bill granting tax breaks to the wealthy at the expense of the country's neediest citizens, and it paves the way for Medicare privatization. One former Obama administration official told TPM that by endangering the program's funding, uh, so-called entitlement hawks like House Speaker Paul Ryan will, will have cover to later on argue that, hey, Medicare as we know it is financially unsustainable. And then, of course, uh, they can uh, invoke their long-held dreams of turning it into a voucher program and, and privatizing the whole thing. Now, remember, these are the same folks that uh, claimed that the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, um, shifted funds uh, from Medicare to pay for certain things. They used to complain. They complained when they were trying to keep Obamacare from being passed that, oh, it's taking money from Medicare. It's robbing the, uh, the elderly. Uh, they raised hell about it at the time. But more importantly here, this tactic that the GOP now employs all the time of, you know, weakening something and then complaining that it doesn't work. Uh, they do that all the time. This is exactly what they did with Obamacare itself. Uh, uh, Mar Marco Rubio, Republican senator from Florida. And, and most people don't even know about this because it's so sort of geeky and in the weeds when it comes to policy. But uh, Rubio had spearheaded a year or so ago uh, this provision that killed the so-called risk corridors that were in Obamacare. OK, what is a risk cor uh, corridor? That was essentially the program uh, to use profits from the exchanges in other states and other jurisdictions to cover insurance companies in jurisdictions that lost money under the uh, under the exchanges because the number of healthy people signed up in that particular jurisdiction, that county or state, wasn't enough to cover the costs in the early years of the Affordable Care Act. So that was built into Obamacare to keep it solvent and make sure that insurers could stay in markets even where they might be losing money. Um, in the early days of, of Obamacare. But Rubio saw this as a chance to, to, to declare this is a government bailout. And so he was able to slip in some must-pass, uh, slip in a provision to a must-pass piece of legislation that basically killed the risk corridors. And that's one of the major reasons that a number of insurance, uh, insurers have had to pull out of certain markets under Obamacare in the last year or two. The Republicans were purposely undermining the program and then uh, citing it as, look, Obamacare is failing because of what they did. So that same thing is now in play here uh, in their American Health Insurance Act when it comes to Medicare. What uh, the Obama, uh, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare actually did was extend the life of Medicare. The trust fund was thought to um, was going to run out. Uh, around uh, 2016, and uh, when they added this 0.9% tax on individuals who are earning more than $200,000 a year, that ended up extending the solvency deadline for the uh, for the Medicare for, uh, trust fund out to uh, out to 2030. And now, the Republican version of repeal and replace 
repeals that tax on uh, on people making more than two hundred thousand dollars a year. And it is once again going to uh, put Medicare in danger. Uh, ARP, AARP, uh, which you know represents millions of retired people, have uh, tried to say that they made that point in their letter. We covered that earlier uh, a few days ago when they came out with their letter opposing the Republican bill. But uh, I just wanted to underscore this because you know Medicaid is under threat, uh, but so is Medicare under threat under this Republican scheme. Uh, pay attention. Yes, please pay attention. Uh, speaking of paying attention here, uh, one quick story before we get to this break. Uh, after a week of punishing airstrikes uh, against al-Qaeda in Yemen by the Trump administration, the week-long blitz has now eclipsed the annual bombing total for any year during Obama's presidency. Remember how uh, people were critical, including me, of uh, Obama, uh, you know, being a war hawk in some of these countries where we haven't even, you know, declared war countries like Yemen. Remember how Hillary Clinton was going to be a war hawk. And that's why we we had to have Donald Trump who would bring us peace. Uh, well, uh, very quietly, with almost no coverage whatsoever, Donald Trump is bombing the hell out of Yemen more so than Barack Obama did in any year of his presidency. Just the past week. The expanding bombing in Yemen signals a more aggressive use of military force by the Trump administration against Islamist militants from Syria to Afghanistan, foreign policy reports. The White House already has approved the deployment of Marines and special operations forces to Syria and a large-scale commando raid in Yemen which was an unbelievable disaster, ended up uh, killing a whole bunch of uh, civilians, including women and children, including an American child, uh, but also a Navy SEAL. On Thursday, a top commander suggested that more troops may now also be headed to Afghanistan. So, uh, you know, so much for uh, Donald Trump is going to be bringing us peace, whoever got that crazy idea in their head. There has been an immediate change in the tempo of operations, foreign policy reports, since Donald Trump took office, reflecting the new administration's apparent preference for prompt military action over policy deliberations and a more dominant role for the military in decision making. That's due in part to the stripped down staffs at the White House, at the State Department and at the Pentagon, where dozens of key posts remain empty were held on a temporary basis by more junior uh, civil servants, those empty desks have allowed military commanders to secure a prompt green light for military operations in Yemen, <clears throat> according to uh, former officials. By default, everything is going to be quicker from flash to bang than it was during the Obama presidency, another Pentagon official said. But bolder military action without a clear diplomatic plan can bring unintended consequences, foreign policy writes, focusing narrowly on the military objectives of counterterrorism strikes without a strategy to resolve the stalemated Yemeni civil war. And address, for example, uh, Saudi and Iranian involvement there. Will They say that will do little to bring stability to the country or solve the underlying ethnic and religious tensions that have allowed al-Qaeda uh, to, uh, to flourish there, experts say. 
More airstrikes, which uh, could also cause more civilian casualties, may fuel resentment of local groups that have forged alliances of convenience with al-Qaeda in Yemen uh, and with other uh, armed groups and would harden grievances that have fed the violence. So this could re- uh, lead to even more regional instability, uh, critics are concerned right now. Who's overseeing any of this right now? We've uh, Our Defense Department, our State Department have now, our State Department in particular, has now been gutted. So things could quickly spiral out of control. All of this while Donald Trump, don't worry, he has his finger on uh, on the nuclear button. What could possibly go wrong? We'll talk about what could possibly go wrong uh, next with my guest, Ernie Canning, as we all struggle to try to uh, keep control of wherever the hell this country and this world is now going. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is your Bradcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com with you here. Thanks for staying with us. Uh, A few days ago, Associated Press reported that China had granted preliminary, preliminary approval for 38 new Trump trademarks, paving the way for Donald Trump and his family to develop a host of branded businesses from hotels to insurance to bodyguard and escort services. Yes, escort services, according to public documents. Trump's lawyers in China applied for these trademarks back in April of 2016, and critics say that Trump's swelling portfolio of China trademarks raises serious conflict of interest questions. Sound familiar? China's trademark office published the provisional uh, approval of these trademarks uh, last Monday. If Trump receives any special treatment in securing trademark rights, that would be a violation of the U.S. Constitution, says AP, which bans public servants from accepting anything of value from foreign governments unless approved by Congress. That, according to ethics lawyers, from across the political spectrum. Dan Plain, a director at Simone IP Services, which is a Hong Kong intellectual property consultancy, says he has never seen so many applications approved so quickly. For all of these marks to sail through so quickly and cleanly, he said, with no similar marks, no identical marks, no issues with specifications, boy, it's weird, he said. The trademarks are for businesses, as mentioned, including uh, branded spas, massage parlors, golf clubs, hotels, uh, insurance, finance and real estate companies, retail shops, restaurants, bars and private bodyguard and, yes, escort services. Spring Chong, a uh, founding partner at Chongxi and Partners, a Beijing law firm that has represented the Trump organization, said, I don't see any special treatment to the cases of my clients so far. 
She said, I think they're very fair and the examination standard is very equal for every applicant. Richard Painter, however, who served as chief ethics lawyer for President George W. Bush, said the volume of new approvals raised red flags. So just more red flags when it comes to Donald Trump's apparent conflicts of interest around the world, which folks like Norman Solomon of RootsAction.org, who we had on the show a week or two ago, uh, he said these sorts of things are clear violations of the U.S. Constitution's emoluments clauses, both foreign and domestic emoluments clauses, Um, and uh, which guys like Solomon have argued are grounds for immediate impeachment of this president, immediate from the day that he was sworn into office. So with ever increasing questions about his potential business conflicts around the world and his still increasingly erratic behavior, Uh, not to mention his disturbing policies and and promises of late, Uh, the White House has been guarding the president more and more closely in recent days to sort of keep him out of reach of the media and their meddling questions about all of the above. Dylan Byers over at CNN this week reports that Trump has canceled multiple open press events this past week, opting not to let reporters into the room to even ask questions. The moves, uh, he writes, have allowed the president to avoid questions about a litany of issues, including the WikiLeaks CIA dump and Trump's accusations uh, made without evidence that former President Obama had wiretapped him in Trump Tower. On Tuesday, for example, the White House canceled a scheduled Oval Office press event with Trump and AFL-CIO President Richard Trumka. On Thursday, it canceled uh, one that was scheduled to take place during a luncheon with members of Congress. White House Deputy Press Secretary Stephanie Grisham said that the cancellations uh, were, were game, quote, game time decisions made by her. She said she determined the rooms were too full to accommodate press and equipment. Trump did uh, did hold one open press event on Thursday. He was asked about the WikiLeaks CIA matter uh, by a reporter, but he just smiled and did not respond. Over the past week, however, Trump should have been basking in the warm glow of the uh, corporate media's ridiculous characterization of his uh, his address to a joint session of Congress as being newly presidential, as the long awaited pivot from the right wing fever swamps uh, that, uh, you know, that he's been running on for the past several years now uh, in his turn to becoming a national statesman. Instead, over the weekend after the speech, Trump unleashed that fresh Twitter storm, declaring uh, the Obama administration had wiretapped his campaign. He offered no evidence to support that charge, but he appears to have been referencing this uh, latest conspiracy theory that's been bubbling up from those fever swamps of late, uh, charging there is a silent coup being orchestrated by his predecessor, Barack Obama, uh, both before and, uh, and after leaving office. Trump railed on Twitter, How long has President Obama gone to tap my phones during the very sacred election process? This is Nixon, Watergate. Bad or sick guy, Trump said. Obama spokesperson Kevin Lewis has uh, said that uh, Trump's wire claims are, quote, unequivocally false. 
There's a lack of evidence so far to support the claim. Many have described Trump's uh, claims as baseless, but funny that he should mention Richard Nixon and sickness for that matter. Nearing the end of the 37th president's time in the White House, Nixon was said to have become wildly paranoid about the threat from his enemies in both the press and government. If Nixon had uh, enemies, they certainly came from both sides of the aisle. In February of 1974, the House of Representatives, by an overwhelming vote, 410 to 4, authorized the Judiciary Committee to consider impeachment. Some months later, following the Judiciary Committee's determination that Nixon should, in fact, be impeached in the U.S. House, and after Republican Senator Barry Goldwater informed Nixon that he faced near certain conviction by the U.S. Senate uh, in August of 1974, more than two years after the June 1972 break-in at the Watergate headquarters of the Democratic National Committee, Nixon finally resigned from office rather than face accountability by the U.S. Congress. Now, depending on what the uh, hard evidence ultimately establishes, it could be argued that the need to impeach Donald Trump exceeds the reasons why even Richard Nixon faced near certain impeachment and removal. But as revealed by that Watergate scandal, impeachment is a long and cumbersome and at least for the next two years, while Republicans control both chambers of Congress, a very unlikely process. The Washington Post recently reported that Donald Trump of late has been, quote, mad, steaming, raging mad in private, railing atop staffers over a number of issues that have set back his so far constantly chaotic presidency. Christopher Ruddy, a friend of Trump's and CEO of the right wing Newsmax outlet, told the paper after golfing with Trump last weekend at Mar-a-Lago, Donald Trump was ticked. I'll just put it that way. He said, I haven't seen him this angry. Impeachment is a difficult, long and inherently political process, but it's not the only constitutional means for forcibly removing a president from office. If questions not only about Trump's conflicts of interest, but about his stability and emotional state continue to swirl, Or if that sort of behavior escalates quickly, as it could, the 45th president of the United States could be removed from office by the 25th Amendment much more quickly than uh, could happen by impeachment. But is that even possible? And uh, just what is the 25th Amendment? And how does it work? Has it ever been used before? Here to discuss that with us is Brad Blog, legal analyst, Ernest A. Canning, he is a uh, happily retired, I think, a happily retired attorney now. He's author. He's an author, Vietnam veteran, and uh, during the presidential campaign last year, he was a senior advisor to Veterans for Bernie. Uh, hey, Ernesto, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. How you doing, amigo? I'm, I'm hanging in there. Uh, all right, uh, you write at, uh, at bradblog.com today in an article headlined, Taking the 25th. That Section 4 of the 25th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution has never been utilized, but that it could, it could be and might appropriately be used as a way to remove Donald Trump from office. So before we discuss the possibilities of such a thing uh, and the consequences of that, uh, explain how the 25th Amendment 
uh, if it's ever invoked, how is that actually supposed to work if we uh, use the Constitution uh, for a change? Well, we couldn't use it, but the vice president and a majority of Trump's cabinet, own cabinet, could use it. If, uh, if Pence and a majority of the cabinet signed a, declar- a written declaration that said that Trump was unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office, uh, Pence would immediately become the uh, acting president. Mm-hmm. Trump could uh, submit a declaration in which he disputes that, and, mm-hmm. the, and the Congress would have, uh, I believe it's uh, 21 days from the date that, that Trump mm-hmm. submitted that declaration to make a decision on whether or not the vice president is right. And it would require two-thirds of each house mm-hmm. to vote to uphold the vice president, in which case uh, he would be permanently removed from office. The nice thing about it is all it takes to get this guy away from the nuclear trigger would be the declaration submitted to Congress in which the vice president and a majority of the cabinet uh, say that he's unfit. Well, that gets him away from the nuclear trigger, but uh, as you note, Ernie Canning, only long enough uh, you know, until uh, Trump de- himself declares otherwise, and then it goes back to the Congress, for the House and the Senate, to decide essentially to uh, uh, to to break the tie. And in that case, uh, you'd have to get, I guess, two thirds of both houses, as you say, to overrule um, to overrule the vice president and his and Trump's own cabinet, who says he's not fit for office. So, I mean, under what circuit that that sounds like a tall order. That sounds like almost as tall order as impeachment. So what under what circumstances uh, d- do you foresee? And I should note, you're not the only one who has been bringing up this case. Uh, Harvard law professor Lawrence Tribe and uh, former Reagan official Bruce Bartlett have been focusing on the 25th Amendment. But what, under what circumstances do you you know, foresee that it's even possible that Trump's own cabinet and his own vice president would invoke such a drastic action? Well, the only way I see it happening, and, it, and it's not out of the realm of possibility, is that the madness that has been the Trump presidency and keeps seemingly spiraling further and further out of control is such that if the Republicans, particularly in the House and Senate, began to believe that their time would be limited and that if Trump is not removed by either impeachment or by the 25th Amendment, that uh, they're likely to lose one or both houses of Congress in 2018. I think that would be what it would be required. It's you know the interesting thing about both impeachment and the 25th Amendment is they're essentially political decisions mm-hmm. uh, they, that are not subject to judicial review. So the, the high level, the two thirds, is so that you just don't have a, a vice president in the cabinet uh, coming in and committing a coup. Right. Uh, uh, but on the other hand. The fact that someone like Trump is unbelievably unqualified. I mean, you know, the, the thing you were reading about uh, how he's walking around screaming and all that, and he's only been in a short time, yeah. uh, reminds me of uh, what the Secret Service said about Nixon in the closing days, that he was, uh, you know, two, two sheets to the wind and uh, uh, was walking around the halls of the, the White House uh, communicating with or talking to uh, the portraits of dead presidents. So, uh, 
you know, it gets a little, you get a little nervous about somebody being the president of the United States when they get to that degree. Yeah, well, I, I've, I've been nervous, and uh, Trump is not even to that degree, and yet uh, he, he makes me incredibly nervous. I mentioned uh, uh, Lawrence Tribe, a Harvard Law professor, and, and Bruce Bartlett. You cite uh, in your article at bradblog.com on, on this uh, 25th Amendment, you cite some pushback. The tribe received uh, uh, on this on this point from an attorney named uh, Robert Burns, I think is his name. Barnes. Uh, Barnes, yeah. He says that uh, tribe is misinterpreting the 25th Amendment. Uh, what's, uh, what's Barnes's argument there? He argues, after he gets done smearing tribe by putting the word professor in quotes and uh, uh, some other things, mm-hmm. he, he, when he gets to the substance of it, he said that the 25th Amendment would only apply if the president is legally incapacitated, which he says uh, the literal inability to function, coma status or its equivalent, uh, or a mental illness so severe that it prevents uh, someone from feeding themselves. Well, the problem with with Barnes' argument, besides the fact that he appears to be blinded by the right, is that uh, the amendment doesn't use the word incapacity. And there is a monumental difference between somebody's bare ability to feed and clothe themselves and the qualifications for being the president of the United States. Mm -hmm. And just because you're able to feed and clothe yourself, well, I don't know, maybe Republicans, they've been, you know, from Dan Quayle and George W. Bush and now Trump, uh, I guess, have a view that anybody can be president as long as they (laughs) do what they're told. Uh, But uh, You're you're tough, man. You're tough, yeah. yeah. Um, but, but, you know, that's the basic issue. There is a downside um, for those who have been taking to the streets because they are, you know, ex- exceptionally concerned with the political direction of the current administration. Mm-hmm. And that's that if you get rid of Trump, you're going to elevate a right-wing ideologue who, Mike Pence, who Mike during Pence. the vice pres- presidential debate had, had showed that he's, a far more polished liar than, than uh, Donald Trump could ever hope to be. Well, that's right. And, uh, I, you know, I think it's almost an insurance policy in, in uh, many cases for Donald Trump, much as, uh, you, you know, Dick Cheney was an insurance policy to some extent for George W. Bush. Uh, I had asked Norman Solomon about that when he was on to discuss impeachment. Uh, he argued that didn't matter. He said impeachment was the right thing to do, period, no matter the consequences, no matter who uh, came in, uh, you know, just on a constitutional basis, frankly, on a conservative constitutional basis. And that occurs to me when you uh, uh, discuss Robert Barnes's, uh, you know, claim that the president, you know, must be incapacitated in order to invoke the 25th Amendment if if you use a very, you know, conservative, uh, plain text reading uh, of the uh, of the Section Four of the Twenty Fifth Amendment, as Antonin Scalia would uh, undoubtedly say, you know, you're right. It doesn't say anything about incapacity. It is up to the vice president uh, for whatever decision the vice president and the president's cabinet to to do this for whatever reason they want. Uh, Ernie, let, let me ask you: um, in, in cases like impeachment. Uh, and the 25th Amendment and, you know, the Electoral College vote. Remember uh, when the electors had come in and and people had said, well, it's ridiculous uh, that they would invoke 
their what the what the Constitution foresees, you know, the electors deciding, well, no, you know what? We think the people got it wrong this time. So we're going to vote this way. In all of these cases, we've got these constitutional issues that are rarely if ever used, and it's almost uh, as if, well, they haven't been used for so long that uh, they're, they're not to be taken seriously for some reason. Uh, well, it's not so much that, Brad. When, they, when the framers of the Constitution put in the impeachment clause, and obviously the 25th Amendment came in much later, but when they put in the impeachment clause, they didn't presume that there would be something like the Republican Party that is itself designed as an anti-democracy vehicle. And uh, it, it kind of reminds me, in fact, I pulled this quote up uh, from Joseph Goebbels, you know who he is, the, mm-hmm. the Nazi minister of propaganda, and he was talking about what he called the stupidity of democracy, and he said, it will always remain one of democracy's best jokes that it provided its mortal enemies with the means by which it was destroyed. And the mm-hmm. problem that we have is there are all kinds of grounds for impeaching Donald J. Trump. Uh, you were talking about the Emoluments Clause mm-hmm. uh, a moment ago, and uh, Professor Tribe has documented what he says already is 38 separate violations of the Emoluments Clause. Uh, we probably learn a lot more if we had an honest Congress that was willing to subpoena uh, the president's tax returns and fully investigate all of these things. You know, there's all these uh, allegations about RussiaGate and whether the whether the, anything was hacked and and with the rigged election. But as you and I know, it's our own fault for continuing to vote on on an e-voting system that is often unverifiable. And we really don't know who won this last election unless you just trust the machines. So, uh, you know, and it didn't have to come from the Russians. It, it could have been just you know, errors in the machines. It could be, you know, an insider hacking it. But the bottom line is that if we're really going to take democracy serious, we're going to have to start guarding the institutions of democracy. You know, the, the, the point I made about yeah. uh, Pence coming in and using the 25th and why it might be better if we really had serious investigation, if it becomes readily apparent that all these things come out, and that the uh, Trump administration has been involved in all kinds of illegalities, and when I'm including an attorney general that may have committed perjury, uh, that uh, come 2018, there could very well be a significant change in Congress, and we, we, you know, these institutions may operate as they're supposed to. The problem we face right now is you have a Republican-controlled Congress that doesn't appear to be all that enthused about enforcing the uh, checks and balances that were placed into the Constitution. And so our very democratic institutions themselves are at risk because of what's taking place right now. Yeah, well, I I agree with you. Um, But, you know, I think there's also this broader point that we've sort of come to look at the Constitution as if it is, you know, something from another world, something from another era. I mean, you know, when it comes to the 25th Amendment alone, you know, I I, I suspect most people don't even know what it is unless they saw the movie Air Force One, where I think uh, the 25th Amendment with Harrison Ford, uh, where that came into play in that movie. But we, we regard all of these things 
things in the Constitution. You had, you know, George W. Bush, for Christ's sake, you know, I, I can list 50 reasons why he should have been uh, impeached, even Barack Obama. There are there was some very good arguments as far as, you know, why you might want to bring impeachment hearings against uh, Barack Obama, uh, you know, citing uh, American citizens for assassination. But the idea that we don't use this Constitution, that it is somehow uh, set in stone for certain things. Oh, you can't change these amendments. You can't add new amendments or whatever it is. And other things, oh, that's meant to be ignored. Uh, you know, I think we do need to take a closer look at our relationship with democracy and with the U.S. Constitution itself. Um, well, we, the, yeah. the impeachment can be an improper tool, which I think you had with the Clinton impeachment, or it can be a very good tool. And, um, you know, I'm a little older than most, uh, uh, probably most of your listeners, and but I remember very well the whole uh, thing taking place with Nixon and as it went through. And at that time, the system was functioning much better than it is now. You, you had these remarkable public hearings that were conducted under Sam Irvin mm -hmm. with the Senate uh, Select Committee, yep. then followed by the, the House Committee. To give you an idea, of, uh, there, were there were certainly Republicans that were obstructionists back then, too. One of them, and it, it really captures what was exceptional then, but seems to be the mainstay of the Republican Party that now is that during the last week that Nixon was in office, and this is the time when, you know, he's talking to the dead presidents, the Oval Office uh, smoking gun tapes were released that showed that he had, he had basically conspired to commit the cover-up, which was a federal crime. And so there was a, a GOP congressman named Earl Langreby, and he was asked what, how he could still oppose uh, impeachment in the face of all this evidence, and he said, don't confuse me with facts. I've got a closed mind. <laughs> and 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 I think uh, that faction of the Republican Party has completely uh, taken over the entire party at this point. Ernie, I, I got to get out. Uh, thank you uh, for uh, stopping by today and for your piece today at Bradblog.com, taking the 25th. Uh, Ernie is, of course, our uh, our legal analyst at Bradblog. Long serving legal analyst at uh, Bradblog.com. Always great to talk to you, Ernie. Uh, and I would point folks uh, to your piece at Bradblog.com and uh, to the Facebooks and the Twitters where you can uh, harangue and harass Ernie instead of me for a change. His uh, his Twitter handle is can for ing. That's C A N N. The number four I N G. Thanks, Ernie. You're welcome, Brad. Okay, a quick break, and we're back with the Green News Report and the lovely Desi Doyen. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hey, this is Brad. What the public hears over the public airwaves matters. Without an informed electorate, we've got, well, we've got what we have right now. We do our best on the broadcast five days a week to balance that with accurate reporting on issues that actually matter. We don't always get it right, but we try like hell to do so. And we do it all independently and without the influence of corporate or political funding. But we can't do it without you. Please don't presume others will step up. We need you to help us keep doing what Desi Doyen and myself try to do every day on the broadcast. Please help us continue to do so by going to bradblog.com slash donate to help keep the broadcast going and telling the truth over your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. Don't wait. 
Please stop by today. Thanks. I wish we could stop the world. Welcome back to the Bradcast. <laughs> Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, boy, I had all of this good voting news I wanted to get to. Well, maybe I'll be able to get to a tiny bit of it. But I des also wanted to give you the chance to respond to this Scott Pruitt comment, um, which yeah. came out uh, not in time for our latest Green News report. So let's do that, and then I'll, I want to get your thoughts on this uh, Pruitt comment. We'll start first with our latest Green News report. More than a million acres burning tonight across Texas, Oklahoma, Colorado, and Kansas. State of emergency declared for early season wildfires across four states. Trump administration plans cuts to Coast Guard, FEMA, and Energy Star program. Gulf of Mexico dolphins still suffering effects of the 2010 BP oil disaster. Plus, air pollution is something that we can solve. Pollution is responsible for the deaths of 1.7 million children each year. All of those stories and more straight ahead. From bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. The rationale for the proposed cuts? Limiting federal spending and overreach by allowing states to enforce environmental laws. What could possibly go wrong? This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, is it just me or does it seem very, very early for wildfire season to already be kicking off? It is very, very early for wildfire season, especially in Oklahoma. Now, this is the state that in early February hit a record high of 100 degrees. Now, a state of emergency has been declared by Oklahoma Governor Mary Fallon due to an outbreak of wildfires in what officials say is the worst wildfire event in northwest Oklahoma history. This early season outbreak of wildfires across four states, Oklahoma, Kansas, Texas, in Colorado has already killed at least six people and burned more than a million acres. What's the name of the new EPA administrator again? Scott Pruitt. And uh, he doesn't believe in climate change, right? No, he doesn't. And where is he from again? Oklahoma. Huh. Well, the wildfires are also what makes the Trump administration's proposed budget cuts even more inexplicable. The Trump administration's Office of Management and Budget proposes slashing the budget of FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, by 15 percent, and that would directly affect disaster relief, response, and recovery for states that have natural disasters like tornadoes, hurricanes, floods, and wildfires, like in Oklahoma. The Office of Management and Budget also plans significant cuts to the U.S. Coast Guard. That would impact not only national security in protecting the nation's vast coastlines, but also the Coast Guard's operations in curbing illegal fishing, its capacity as the first responder to offshore oil spills, and the Coast Guard's operations in the Arctic, especially now that Russia is expanding its reach in exploiting the melting Arctic's fossil fuel resources. I thought that Donald Trump was going to increase military spending by $54 billion. Is the Coast Guard no longer a part of the military? Apparently not. That's weird. The OMB also proposes eliminating the popular Energy Star program for consumer products. The Energy Star program sets energy efficiency standards for appliances and electronics that save consumers money, billions in energy costs every single year. 
Of course, that may be why it's slated for elimination, because a billion dollars saved is a billion dollars not paid to the energy industry. Well said. Meanwhile, a group of scientists who are tracking changes to the websites of federal science agencies announced this week that the website of the Environmental Protection Agency's Science and Technology Office has removed the word science from its mission statement. So the EPA Science and Technology Office writes clean water standards. Its website used to say it relied on science-based standards for clean drinking water. Now it just says it relies on, quote, economically and technologically achievable standards for clean water. Wow. Talk about lowering the bar. The new Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke this week announced another sale of leases for offshore drilling in federal waters in the Gulf of Mexico. But scientists say wildlife in the Gulf still hasn't recovered from the BP oil disaster in 2010. A new study finds the endangered Kemp's Ridley sea turtle still has a 75% mortality rate. Bottlenose dolphin populations in the Gulf are still suffering high rates of severe lung disease and low reproductive rates. Pollution is also a leading cause of death among young children around the world. That's according to new data from the World Health Organization. Pollution is responsible for 25 percent of the deaths of young children under the age of five around the world. That is 1.7 million children every year from toxic air, contaminated water, and lack of sanitation. Air pollution is particularly inescapable, warns WHO Director General Dr. Margaret Chan in an interview with the BBC. Everybody has to breathe, and when breathing becomes deadly, the entire city, doesn't matter which part you are in, become a hazard to health. Finally, though, some good news. The air is a lot cleaner in the United Kingdom now as the British government phases out the use of coal. And the UK's carbon emissions have fallen at the same time by switching to cleaner burning natural gas, ramping up renewables, and also with a strong carbon tax. That carbon tax has helped cut Britain's emissions to 19th century levels. Silly Britain. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to, Check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. To love you. Oh. Uh, Desi, we, uh, this came in after... Uh, our Green News report, but Scott Pruitt, formerly the uh, the Attorney General of Oklahoma, a huge enemy, the nemesis of the Environmental Protection Agency, he now heads it. He's a huge climate change denier, uh, and he was asked by who is this? Joe Kernan? Yes, Joe uh, Kernan on CNBC. On CNBC, uh, Pruitt was asked about uh, carbon dioxide. Well, let's just play this because I want to get your your thoughts on this. Do you believe that it's been proven that CO two is the primary control knob for climate? Do you believe that? No, I no, I think that that measuring with precision. Uh, human activity on the climate is something very challenging to do, and there's trem- tremendous disagreement about the, the degree of impact. No, there isn't. Uh, so, so, no, I would not agree uh, that it's a primary contributor uh, to, the, to the global warming that we see. Wow. Okay. All right, but we man. don't know that yet as far as we, we, need, to, we need to continue the debate yes, and we continue do. the review and the continue analysis. Continue the debate. It's, 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 it's a, I agree. When I hear the science is settled, it's like I've, I never heard that 
science actually gotten to a point where it was, so that's, that's the whole point of science, is that uh, you keep asking questions, you keep asking questions, but I don't want to be called a denier, so uh, well, you you know, are. it scares me. It's, it's a terrible thing to be called. Anyway, Administrator Pruitt, I know you don't want to be called that either. Um, thanks for being with us this morning. I appreciate it. It's just unbelievable. Joe Kern in there is almost worse uh, that he never heard that it was proven. Um, but, of it's, course, he's not ahead of the EPA. It's true. And it's been proven. The CO2 effect uh, on the on the climate has been proven since the mid-1800s. So this is absolutely settled science that CO2 has a warming effect. They're debating the actual precise impact. And what scientists are saying now is absolutely there is zero scientific scientific disagreement that the impact of of carbon dioxide is the primary driver of global warming, responsible for about 65% of the observed warming that we have seen so far. Methane is only about 18%. CO2 is absolutely the primary driver, and it is very dangerous. We have enough information now to go forward now and delay no longer on taking policies that will address climate change. But the head of the Environmental Protection Agency doesn't believe that. And frankly, this uh, Kernan guy on CNN, you know, a big uh, media outlet, oh, he yeah. has no idea. What? I haven't heard. Never oh, heard he, he has totally heard this and he dismisses it. That's what makes him a denier. That is what makes Pruitt a denier. This is like the Surgeon General saying that smoking doesn't cause cancer or germs don't cause disease. This is basically settled science. They just don't like to admit it. All right, because we can't leave you with that bad news, let me just uh, leave you with this very quickly. The California Secretary of State has announced this week the launch of online pre-registration for 16- and 17-year-olds oh, for voting. California 16- and 17-year-olds can now pre-register to vote online at registertovote.ca.gov. They can do it from school, from home. They can do it on their on their uh, smartphones, on their tablets or their laptops. Now, it doesn't change the voting age. That's still 18 uh, in uh, California and everywhere else. But it allows Californians who Californians who are ages 16 or 17 now to just do this online uh, voter registration and they will be automatically registered when they turn 18. That's good news, if only because there are so many states in the country where uh, legislators, Republican legislators, are restricting the right to vote. Nice to see California finally beginning to get its act together a little bit and expand the franchise. So uh, that's some good news. I had more I had hoped to get to on that score, but that will have to wait until our next thrilling episode. Until then, my thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Ernest A. Canning, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. You can download the Bradcast anytime for free at bradblog.com if you missed any portion of our uh, show. You can drop me email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And you can find, follow, and harass me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Brad Blog. That's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.